This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this is DJ Eric, the Dream Weaver, and I'm here to talk to you about feeling all right and how the message and the music can make healthcare healthier. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Stevie K, the DJ. You may know him as Dr. Stephen Clasco. You know, he's someone that has made a career out of changing healthcare for the better and in tackling a broken, fragmented, unfriendly, expensive, and inequitable healthcare system. He's currently an executive in residence at uh, General Catalyst. He's the North American ambassador for Sheba Medical Center in Israel. He's a CMO at Abundant Partners. He served as the CEO of Jefferson Health from 2013 to 2021, which is one of the nation's fastest growing academic health institutions. He's someone that really needs no introduction. He's well-known. He's been on Modern Healthcare's 100 Most Influential uh, Individuals list. He's been named as one of the most creative people in business. He was the Philadelphia Entrepreneur of the Year in 2018, one of the 100 Great Leaders in Healthcare by Beckers, and on and on and on. And you may know him, again, as someone that's an advocate for transformation in healthcare, but he also has the persona of Stevie K, the DJ, and that was his true dream to find hope in music and and play music for other people to really elevate and and energize an audience. And for Stephen Clasco, he's been a lifelong DJ. The music is the message. We're here to talk about his new book. Uh, which is a memoir, a manifesto, a pep talk, a policy primer. It's a how-to manual. It's all rolled up together. In this episode, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to be talking about music and how the the power of the lyrics really apply to some of the big transformational changes that we need in healthcare. So definitely an, another great episode of The Race to Value. Make sure if you like the episode, give us a, a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We have a newsletter also you can sign up for so you don't miss future episodes. Go to racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter. And without further delay, let's now hear from a return guest to Race to Value, Dr. Stephen K. Clasco, otherwise known as Stevie K. the DJ, as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Clasco, welcome back to the Race to Value podcast. We had you on a few years ago to talk about your last book, Unhealthcare, a Manifesto for Health Insurance. And it's so amazing and awesome to have you back on the podcast to talk about your new book. Can't wait to get our conversation started. 
Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, it was great last time. And <laughs> I'm sad to say uh, things in healthcare haven't really improved since our last time. So, uh, but there's a lot of excitement of things that we can do. And, and the whole idea of the book was to try to take music as a metaphor around uh, the optimistic world of where things are heading. Well, I can't wait to get into that optimism. We certainly need it right now. And our listeners are very familiar with your role as a transformational leader in healthcare. And you spent a career as a physician, a health system CEO, a university president and dean. You've been working your whole career towards building a better healthcare system. But fewer people, however, know about your alter ego, Stevie K, the DJ. And you had an earlier professional career as a DJ after college. You once had a gig spinning records for radio listeners in your hometown of Philadelphia. Uh, can you introduce us to Stevie K, the DJ, and how your love for music inspired you to write this book, Feeling All Right? And what compelled you to write a book about healthcare, which draws the power of song lyrics to inspire healthcare executives to envision a more accessible, high quality, and equitable healthcare system? Hi, this is little Stevie Kent coming at you and the Race for Value podcast. Uh, yeah, so um, I was a DJ uh, uh, in the 70s, uh, midnight to five. And uh, the, the very short version of the story is I got fired. That That's the career I wanted to have. Went back to Lehigh University, which is my school. And they said, uh, I said, what am I going to do? They said, well, in a weird way, you've taken enough chemistry courses. You could apply to medical school. I said, why would I want to do that? I said, because you're clearly not going to be a DJ and you need a job. I said, good point. Um, and my second interview, it turned out that an OBGYN was my interviewer at, in Philadelphia and went through my thing and saw that I was little Stevie Kent from WISP. And he goes, oh, my God, I've almost missed some deliveries. Uh, you know, OB's coming a lot from midnight to five. I'm one now. And, uh, and, you know, based on your stories, it'd be great to have you come to our medical school. So that's how I came. That's how I got into medicine. So uh, fast forward about 45 years uh, and we were in the middle of the pandemic. I'm now the president and CEO of an 18 hospital uh, system and two campus university um, with 35,000 employees. And I use music to help us with the trifecta of the pandemic, the financial tsunami, and the systemic racism discussions around the George Floyd protests. And so every Friday I would send a playlist. Um, and that became my way of communicating. And the beautiful thing about that was I wasn't president of Classical anymore. I was Stevie K the DJ. And I would get a couple hundred emails back, you know, people talking to me on an equal level about music. So just one quick example, when when the George Floyd protests were happening, I, I put out this song, Choice of Colors by Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. Uh, if you had your choice of colors, which would you choose my brother? If there was no black or white, which would you deserve to be right? And um, I started to get all these things from folks that have been angry, uh, talking about other songs that I, that we could use. And it became my way of, of dialoguing. And it actually, it was part of a Wharton Business uh, Review article around how that became a way that we very, very, very successfully managed the pandemic and have one of the highest vaccine rates uh, with a very committed staff. So I think music, everybody can remember, everybody can remember something that happened to them and the music that was playing. And that's, Eric, that's what I try to do in, in this book. Well, at Jefferson Health, uh, Sia's Courage to Change became something of a theme song, as I understand for your frontline workers and their heroic response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And 
Sia begins the song by telling her audience that she can relate to everyone's pain and goes on to say that we all need to embrace change to become better. And I wanted to read just a quick excerpt from that powerful song. Standing together, we can do anything. World, you're not alone in all this. You're not alone. I promise. Standing together, we can do anything. I want to leave you better. I want my life to matter. I'm afraid I have no purpose here. The rain it falls, rain it falls, pouring on me. And the rain it falls, rain it falls. Sowing the seeds of love and hope, love and hope. You don't have to stay here stuck in the weeds. Have I the courage to change? And, you know, Steve, the first chapter in your book is is about, you know, everyone in the healthcare system, patients, providers, hospitals, pharma, you know, the the founders of tech companies and it's all about them having the courage to change in order to save a broken healthcare system and this elevation of consciousness will only be possible if we recognize the moral imperative of healthcare and how the excess profiteering of the current fee for service medical industrial complex brings about shocking and inhumane levels of inequality and injustice. Can you describe your views on how courage, radical creativity, and collaboration will help us to overcome the inertia to change the system? Yeah, Courage to Change became sort of our theme song. In fact, our nurses ended up on Ellen because Sia had done this Level Up Challenge, which is another one of her songs. We did this whole dance. I mean, you have to think back. You know, it's not that long ago, but you think back to like March, April, May of 2020. And, you know, uh, we were the largest COVID hospital, a lot of underserved folks. The healthcare workers, Eric, were, were it was the only war we've ever had where you went to war and then you went home and you were still in the war. We had nurses and environmental service workers that after they went to the hospitals, this is like before some of the masking and certainly before the vaccine had to literally see their kids through a screen door because they were afraid of infecting them. So really using music as a way of, of having us look at a brighter day uh, was incredibly important. The, the courage to change theme came from the fact that we know what's wrong with the system. I mean, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the whole alcoholic thing. First thing you have to do is recognize that, you know, when you go to your doctor and says, are you an alcoholic? No, you know, I'm a social drinker. How many drinks do you have? I have five drinks a day. Uh, the first thing you have to do is, is acknowledge you're an alcoholic. The first thing we have to do in healthcare is that we have to stop saying we're the best healthcare system in the world. We're, 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 we're nowhere close to the best healthcare system in the world. We might be for the top 15% of, of, of the country. So the concept of what do we do about it? I mean, 45 years ago, Eric, one of my mentors wrote a book called Medicine's Dilemmas, Infinite Needs, Finite Resources. And he talked about the, the iron triangle of access, quality, and cost. And if you're going to increase access, you have to increase cost or decrease quality, unless you're willing to disrupt the system and disruption is painful. He said, if anybody ever tells you they're going to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost, it's not going to be painful, they're lying. So ever since the ACA and certainly during Trump's presidency, you know, we've been we've been pretending that that we can incrementalize our way to increase access, increase quality, and decrease cost. And if you think about a market-driven approach, when the Affordable Care Act got passed and we said, we're gonna have to move to value and we're gonna take a dollar and a quarter down to a dollar, you would have sold all your middleman stocks because when Amazon disrupted the retail industry or, or Airbnb disrupted the, the hospitality industry, all those middleman stodgy stocks got killed. Well, you would have been wrong because United Healthcare, for example, other than Apple, was the best stock to have bought since the ACA. Supply chain stocks, even PBM stocks, drugs company stocks all went up. 
HCA, one of the largest healthcare providers, you know, stock went went crazy. So that, that can't be. We just haven't been willing to do the things that we need to do. Now, where do I feel good about things? Um, and certainly in the race to value and in, in making some of the changes. I think the announcement that Kaiser just made with Geisinger and, and Jay Wan Ru is a is a good friend who will be the CEO of Ryzen. The concept of literally taking that Haywider mentality. Everybody says, boy, I wish I could do what Kaiser does. You can't do what Kaiser does because it's a one of a kind in California payer that also added a provider piece, similar with Geisinger, one of a kind in central Pennsylvania. But to be able to take all those learnings over many years and maybe add 10 or 15 systems from around the country in a nonprofit large system becomes really exciting. So I think that's that's one real exciting thing. And I think the second thing we're starting to see is some payer provider alignment and things like Medicare Advantage. I had an accountable care organization at Jefferson with Mainline Health, and it really underperformed for all the reasons that you've talked about on these podcasts. You know, wasn't enough money involved in Medicare shared savings plans. Private docs really weren't interested in changing. Um, but we, we so we sold half of it to Humana and really did it around a Medicare Advantage piece. And there's 65,000 people or so a year in Philadelphia that go on Medicare. And if we could get them converted to Medicare Advantage, good for them and, and good for the system. So you're starting to see some more of those kind of things. And then once you start to see more of those kind of things, then in my current role in Silicon Valley at General Catalyst, you start to see more companies like CityBlock that are you know basically saying, Hey, you know, now, Steve, that you have, like we did, a Medicaid and Medicare Advantage uh, payer as part of your system, we'll help you hire community health workers so that woman with asthma that was coming into your ER 19 times, we just found out she has mold in her house. As a payer provider, it makes sense for you to actually go in and hire a handyman or handywoman to correct the mold instead of treating what happens after that. So... That whole issue, and it's really where my concentration is now, Eric, how do we take population health, social determinants, predictive analytics, and health equity from philosophic and academic exercises to the mainstream clinical care and payment models? And we're starting to see some of that. Well, Steve, I love that chapter in your book, which was aptly named after the Simon and Garfunkel song, Keep the Customer Satisfied. And many people don't know that was the B-side of Bridge Over Troubled Water, which is one of the largest selling and most recorded songs in history. And you write about how in other cultures, health is valued as the most important asset, both personally and societally. And in the U.S., neither – most individuals or traditional healthcare systems have been willing to do the hard work that will keep populations or people healthy. And, you know, our idea of keeping the customer satisfied is to provide an expensive procedure or, or a hospitalization or a, a magical pill to address a chronic disease exacerbation. And our system isn't designed to keep patients healthy and manage their chronic conditions and help them stay out of the hospital. And most hospitals or clinics are still not oriented to financial risk and population health management, which would necessitate that they empty beds and decrease the use of specialists. And despite the universal awareness that high fixed cost hospitals have and getting more money from insurers, it's not sustainable. And we, we but yet we still see few hospitals that are changing their business models to embrace this consumer revolution. You know, instead of a fee for service model that, for example, that rewards inefficiency, you're advocating for healthcare providers to partner with tech-driven, consumer-focused companies that 
offer innovative solutions that have the wherewithal, both creatively and financially, to transform healthcare. So I wanted to ask you if you could describe this concept of health assurance and how it aligns with this movement towards consumerism and value-based care, and how will this commitment keep the customer satisfied to rebuild trust and accountability in our system and drive healthcare in the future? Yeah, well, well, first of all, great. It's a great song. It is the B side of Bridge Over Water. If you remember the lyrics, it's um, I've been slandered, I've been libeled, I've heard words I never heard in the Bible, but I got to keep the customer satisfied. Um, and I think we 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 have this perverse fee for service system, but even beyond the that perverse system, some of it is just that um, who is the customer? Um, you know, and and we haven't really viewed the population or even the people as as the customer. And if you think about the weirdness of health insurance in this in this country, um, as opposed to health assurance, um, you we literally um, have think about this: the employer, if you're employed, and you're seeing a physician, that physician and the person that pays for your care have absolutely no connection. The HR people for your employer negotiate with an insurer and they decide what's best for the company. The insurer then takes what that company and they decided and basically tells you what you can do. You're seeing a physician or a nurse who really does care about you, but really has no control over any of the financial piece. And in fact, if your insurer moves from LabCorp to Quest to save $2 or whatever, and your, your doctor doesn't send it to the right per person, you're going to get the bill. You couldn't come up with a more you know, ridiculous system than that. But that's our system. Um, you know, and the risk of sounding like Bernie Sanders, the, the, the system is set up to to enrich the folks that are in the system, right? And part of the reason things haven't changed, at least from a government point of view, is because of all the lobbying. So the concept behind um, uh, health assurance was, was several. One was that costly sick care will give way to affordable, personalized, and preemptive care, partly through genomic sensors and AI-based digital therapies. And that that will force hospitals to move from being, you know, uh, just the sick care place to what we called at Jefferson Healthcare at any address. Eric, if you came to my office in December 2021 when I was still CEO of Jefferson, there was a sign that said, um, I hope five years from now, when Elon Musk brings people from Mars to Philadelphia and asks where Philadelphia, where Jefferson is, I hope you can't define that. You mean Jefferson at my home or Jefferson in 12 micro hospitals or Jefferson with Comcast? Oh, you mean the place where really, really, really sick people go? I think that's still 10th and Walnut. And, and so the concept of defining Jefferson by our care and caring, and here's probably the most important thing, if anybody's listening, if you want to take one thing away from this, the concept of health assurance is nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to be or thinking they're a patient. They wake up in the morning and say, I'm a person that might have diabetes, congestive heart failure, cancer, um, and I'd like to be able to thrive without healthcare getting in the way. One of the first companies we invested in at GC in, 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 this, in this health assurance space was Livongo. And as you know, Livongo got sold for $18.4 billion to Teladoc. But the genius of Livongo was just, look, 
went to employers, went to people. We will be your invisible friend so you don't have to think about your diabetes. By the way, Clasco at Jefferson can only think of you as a patient. Come to my office, come to my ER, come to my uh, uh, urgent care center, come to my hospital. And if you need any of those things, as your invisible friend, we'll partner with Clasco to get you there. But that's not that's not what you want. So the concept of creating a strong, sustainable partnership between the technology world and providers to remake medicine's role as a society, the concept of applying data and technologic advances to deliver the best preventive, supportive, and least intensive care possible, the concept of recentering the healthcare experience to focus on the relationship between the needs of individual people and, and their care providers, evolving the payer-patient provider system to one where incentives are aligned across all constituencies. And then the other thing that the chapter on Keep the Customer Satisfied talks about is consumer segmentation. We do just an incredibly lousy job of consumer segmentation in healthcare, right? I mean, I, my brain explodes when I see a, um, a billboard that says, you know, Pleasantville Hospital, we are patient-centered. I always laugh, but I say, well, wait, are you patient-centered for somebody like me who's 69 with two R rings and an Apple Watch, or a 75-year-old woman with cancer who only goes on Facebook to see her grandkids, or a 28-year-old disconnected person? You know, Amazon has 1,987,000 types of us we view it as like one patient. So I think I think that those are things that can start to happen. That's what we're doing at GC with these, what we call tier one partners that have really been very positive for us of getting a consortium of the willing of health systems that want to start to do that. We're also doing that with some payers. So I think you'll start to see some of this alignment and, and not because anybody wants to, because frankly, until recently providers, employers, Pharma and the technology world were all doing well. Now they're all being challenged, right? I mean, even in the Silicon Valley world, when I first got to Silicon Valley, if you had AI in your title, you're, you know, you were worth a, a billion dollars and people would come and say, why do we need Steve? Now that every one of these companies has to be sustainable and, and, and revenue producing, um, you know, I'm like Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid. It's like, President Clasco, can you come and help us understand what's really happening in healthcare and who we should partner with? So the concepts of radical collaboration, radical concentration on health disparities, radical creativity around payment models and how we deliver care, and diversifying your portfolio with the recognition that where you got most of your revenue before and inpatient revenue, outpatient revenue might be a money loser. And that you'll need to diversify your portfolio, you know, starting with healthcare at any address and partnering with payers and partnering with um, with some of these technology companies. I, and I got a lot of that from my time. I was an advisor to Apple many, 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 many years ago, about 2,700 splits ago. And I don't think I kept my options. I think I bought a stereo. But um, um, literally, the concept of Apple in the early 2000s was Steve Jobs saying, I don't want to spend the next 10 years going from 4% to 8% of a commoditized market of computers and operating systems. Well, at that time, that was their only revenue. I made the same plea to my colleagues at Jefferson that you know our revenue that is now our total revenue of inpatient revenue, outpatient revenue, in-person tuition, and NIH funding would be commoditized and might be money losers. And we need to basically diversify our portfolio through strategic partnerships with companies like General Catalyst, 
with um, through innovation and venture philanthropy um, and through payer provider models. So I think that that's that's the concept. That's what's starting to happen. I think you'll just see some you'll see some health systems just go away that don't get that. I think you'll, you'll see some health systems that don't think they have the right people to make that happen join the what I call Kaisinger model, Kaiser and Geisinger model. And I think you'll start to see a, a non-contiguous consolidation of, of folks that get it uh, being eating up the folks that don't get it. All right, Stevie K. Well, we're covering some ground here. I'm starting to feel all right. I mean, you, we've talked about some soul and R&B with Curtis Mayfield and the impressions pop and electronica with Sia, folk music with Simon and Garfunkel. And I wanted to bring us now to some classic rock and roll. There's Mr. Roboto, and that's a song by the American rock band Styx, was released in 1983. It's a song that bemoans the plight of modern man oppressed by technology. And it's about a, a person who's been forced to hide his true identity and live as a robot in a futuristic society where rock music is banned. And in the song, there's a person named Kilroy, who's been arrested by the authoritarian government. He's forced to undergo a transformation into a robot. And Kilroy is then sent to work in a factory where he meets other robots who are also hiding their true identities. And the song is a metaphor for the use of technology in modern day society in a few different ways. I mean, it highlights the idea of conformity and the loss of individuality that can occur in a highly techn technological society and suggests that too much reliance on tech can lead to a loss of personal freedom and expression. And the song also touches on the theme of control and manipulation through technology with this authoritarian government um, in the song that uses technology to control and subjugate its citizens. And it can be seen as a warning about the misuse of technology in the modern world. And the lyrics of that song also suggest that technology can be used to create an illusion of perfection with the robots appearing flawless and efficient on the surface, but they're hiding deeper flaws and imperfections beneath. So, you know, Dr. Clasco, can you describe this cautionary tale about the potential dangers and pitfalls of a highly technological healthcare system that lacks humanization in this future world of healthcare transformation, one that's centered around equity and value? How can we overcome the clinician burden of over- documentation in the EHR systems and achieving interoperability and all of the the hype maybe that's uh, part of that Gartner hype cycle. I mean, how can we overcome this inevitable disillusionment of technology and get the best of both worlds where we have a more humanized but also tech-driven healthcare system? Yeah. So for those who are listening, um, this is one where if you haven't heard it, it's uh, it's just really infectious. Uh, Domo Arigato Mizuto Roboto. Um, you're wondering who I am, machine or mannequin, parts made in Japan. I am the modern man. I've got a secret. I've been hiding under my skin. My heart is human. My blood is boiling. My brain IBM. So if you see me acting strangely, don't be surprised. I'm just a man who needed someone and somewhere to hide. So there's a few pieces of, of this, and it's something I've really spent most of my career thinking about where that interface between technology and humans happens. So when online meets offline, what about the human in the middle? And there's there's a few different things about that. I mean, and frankly, my using Mr. Roboto as a metaphor for the last five years was pretty prophetic when you think about what's happening now with generative AI and some of Elon Musk's cautions uh, and, and about what generative AI can do to the human experience. But um, the first thing is we've done a really lousy job 
Eric, in recognizing that things have changed and, and, and not recognizing what that means to the humans. So we still select medical students based on science, GPA, med cats, and organic chemistry grades. And we're amazed doctors are more empathetic, communicative, creative, et cetera. Well, we did that because when I went to medical school in the 70s, if I knew 19 reasons that you had jaundice and somebody else only knew 15, I was a better doctor than you. But now those are all my supersized iPhone. And pretty soon when I'm an obstetrician. When I deliver a baby, there'll be a robot next to me that'll be better than any human on the planet being able to say what's phenotypically wrong with that baby and what the genetics are. And so we had we had done a program of 56 students a year where we erased all the objective criteria, chose them based on self-awareness, empathy, communication skills, and cultural competence. We quadrupled diversity, Eric, in that in that um, in that cohort because there are people in Philadelphia that spend hundred thousand dollars to get little Johnny or little Mary five Princeton reviews and, and three tutors so they can memorize the Krebs cycle. Well, that certainly doesn't make them a good doctor back in the 70s, but it definitely doesn't make them a, a good doctor in, in, in 2023 when, when, when there's technology taking over. So how do we create humans that are more human than the robots instead of more robotic than the robots? So that's the first issue. And, and I've been doing a lot of work on that. I'll be meeting in Maryland with some of the presidents of, of universities around some of that. The second piece on that is then how do we retrain our, our current doctors and faculty? And I've spent a lot of time on that. And at Jefferson, we had something called JOLT, Jefferson Onboarding Leadership Transformation, recognizing that those folks had joined a cult in the old way we taught doctors around an autonomy bias, a competitive bias, a hierarchical bias, and non-creativity bias. So we had to inject, frankly, some of those more human pieces. So that's the second thing. The third thing is we just have to come to a realization that we have we have basically lied to our physicians and nurses that technology would make their life easier, you know, which is a part of what your question was. None of that has been true. You know, starting with the epidemic of electric electric health records that that spawned this whole new group of people we had to hire called scribes. I mean, think about the fact that electronic medical records are the only technology in progress that we've had where you needed more humans just to get back to where you were to have the patient-doctor experience. It'd be like if uh, when microwave ovens came out in the 50s and 60s, and they said, well, there's one catch. You have to hire somebody to operate them. So I think we're starting to understand how do we really have technology help our providers? How do we recognize what technology will do and allow us to to bring in other uh, other types of nurses and doctors that are more human. They might not be physician scientists at Yale, but they'll be great physicians. Um, and how do we educate them them differently? And it took us about forty years to get doctors and nurses to work together. Now we're going to have to have centers that get doctors and robots to work together. So you know, I've been working with a couple of universities to to uh, create. Centers for intersentient education, like we used to have interprofessional education. So the generative AIs and the, and the humans don't come to the CEO and say, we can't get along. I think, you know, that's going to be a major, major, major difference for us um, as we as this technology continues to get better. And, and the generative AI piece is huge. I mean, it really, it really can be an incredible positive, 
or it can be an incredible real real problem. And I was on the advisory board of IBM Watson and just a great example of a company that really had a lot going for it, but didn't understand what the role of AI is. Uh, on the other hand, I'm currently on the advisory board of a company called AI Doc that gets it incredibly, which is it's now in like 700 hospitals. It's not replacing radiologists. What it's doing is working side by side with the radiologists, going through everything that radiologists read in CAT scans and MRIs and saying, you know what, Dr. Clasco, these are the 10% that you might want to relook at. Because uh, I think maybe you missed something or maybe you under or overdiagnosed something. And I relook at them and maybe half of them, I go, well, you know what, you were right. Um, and it's saved lives, it's, it's saved money, but it's an adjunct, it's ambient, it's augmented to uh, uh, to the human intelligence, it's not replacing radiologists. It's not the IBM Watson commercials of, you know, a robot reading, reading the, the, the CAT scan. Well, Stevie K, let's now talk about that unforgettable song from the movie Dreamgirls, which is about the rise and struggle of Motown artists, a song that you stated in your book could really be the theme song for the American healthcare delivery system in the 2020s. The song is I Am Changing by Jennifer Hudson. And in Dreamgirls, Effie White is the headliner of a Motown act who takes her position for granted until she's pushed aside for a more marketable singer. And Effie has to rebuild her career after she hits rock bottom and changes her ways. And in many ways, this is what the traditional healthcare ecosystem is going through now, except not everyone has heard the crash yet. I mean, despite the financial reverses that have been experienced through the pandemic, many health systems continue to grow insatiably through mergers and new hospital builds. And all this consolidation is driven by the last fumes of the fee-for-service engine that still predominate healthcare, but it's on its last leg. And anyone that's awakened to the economic realities of the day you know, see the end of this glorified medical industrial complex. But we still see health systems that are slow to embrace value-based care and population health management. And Dr. Clasco, in your book, you talk about the dinosaurs that don't expect the crash and foresee their own inevitable extinction. And you uh, equate the brick-and-mortar strategy as the dinosaur and posit that they will ultimately be replaced by quicker, more intelligent mammals. And that Darwinian mentality is how you approach leadership at Jefferson with your healthcare at any address model that you talked about earlier. So I wanted to ask you if you could describe your view of the future of healthcare and how it relates to that song, I Am Changing. Will we eventually see emerging digital health technologies creating the enablement for care delivery in the home setting? And will value-based payment shift the paradigm from hospital-centered to patient-centered care? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, by the way, I had the chance to see uh, the, one of the first uh, – Dream Girls performances, Jennifer Holliday originally started as an understudy, and then um, um, she came in and just blew the place off. But I am changing, trying every way I can. I'm changing. I'll be better than I am. Trying to find a way to understand. Uh, could be could be a great metaphor for what's going on in, in healthcare. So I guess the best way to look at this is, you know, I tell everybody when I talk to health system CEOs, you know, think like Target and Walmart. And this is what I mean is when Amazon disrupted that the retail system, there were some folks that said, oh my God, nobody's ever going to a store again. 
right? And, you know, there are people who have said that about hospitals. Hospitals are dead men walking, et cetera. And, you know, there were companies like Circuit City that went all E and, and didn't succeed. Then there were other companies that said, what a stupid fad. Um, you know, everybody loves the day after Thanksgiving, parking 10 miles away and fighting over cabbage patch dolls. Um, and they're called Sears and Pennies, and they used to be called Sears and Pennies. Now they're called bankrupt. Target and Walmart really basically said, hey, we're damn good at what we do, but we also have to be just as good as Amazon in, in doing that. And that that was really my approach. You know, I, I recognize that as much as I became, you know, viewed as a disruptor around this healthcare at any address, you know, uh, I think in 2018, I was, uh, Modern Healthcare called me the number two most influential person in healthcare as a disruptor. Um, I also recognized that, and certainly COVID proved it, that hospitals are essential to any community, right? So the way I looked at it is, if somebody has pancreatic cancer, you know, Jefferson, we have one of the top pancreatic cancer surgeons in the world, you know, they want to see Dr. Yo. They don't really care what our digital strategy is, how good our food is, or how big our TV is. Uh, but for those other 97% of people that we talked about, they would love to have a partner in their healthcare. And if Jefferson could be that partner while they're a person and not a patient, then when something does go wrong, they're not going to go up and down the expressway to see whether we or Penn have a better a better bulletin board, a better billboard. So, so I think that to me, that's that's really the model of how you can be both. How can you be Target and Walmart in the healthcare field? And I think there's a lot of changes that that means. It means, first of all, you spend absolutely no money, none, zero, marketing on billboards or doing 30-second ads, you know, for, for on, on Morning Joe, um, you know, to show people how if they go to your place, you know, that's better. The Onion did a satire on healthcare marketing. There was a, a billboard with a cute five or six-year-old with a flower, a serious surgeon with cuckoo glasses, and something said, where first-class care always comes first. It made no sense. And it doesn't drive anybody, anybody anything, but it costs $50,000. And it's what, you know, chief marketing officers at hospitals do. The new marketing, in my opinion, is guiding consumers by giving them the information they need to make good decisions about their health. And, you know, you've talked about this in the podcast that we know consumers who are disengaged in managing their own health care are very often unsatisfied and they drive up costs. Then the next one is finding convenient ways for consumers to connect with your healthcare communities. That gets back to being Target and Walmart and not Macy's, Sears and Pennies. And then inspiring loyalty. Learn, learn from other industries. Learn about consumer segmentation. Uh, learn about, use some of the technologies that are now around to see where your patients and the people in your system are accessing information, right? I mean, my son's an actor and he did a, a Love's Diapers commercial. I remember I went on YouTube a few times to, to, to see it. And now every time I get on Google, I get, uh, hey, Steve, are you having another baby? Do you need diapers? Um, imagine if we did that positively for people with systemic lupus erythematosus that, are, that have gotten on Google or whatever, and we can basically know that and tell them about some new clinical trial or whatever. One of the companies I'm working with, I'm on the board of called uh, Paradigm, is doing that with clinical research where we're connecting people directly instead of going back to the 90s model of connecting people with clinical research. And when we finally do that, we're able to connect in a segmented way to underserved patients much better. And then I think we're gonna to have to demonstrate value for money, give 
consumers a single point of contact and really create this seamless experience across the continuum, which is exactly what it is. And, you know, the, I think the, the, the biggest, if you want to recognize where we failed, all you have to do is look at the one medical sale to Amazon for $3.2 million, billion. I mean, $3.2 billion. And all it did at one medical, all it does at one medical is do what we should have done in primary care. It basically makes it easy for people to get appointments, is nice to them, follows up, has some interesting technology, and gets them to the right person at the right place at the right time. That's what they did for $3.2 billion. And we're sitting here in hospitals losing money saying, poor us, with our high fixed costs, and you know, not recognizing that those are things that we should have done. So a lot of the, the companies that are now worth 50, 60, 70, $80 billion, ChenMed, Oak Street, one medical, Oscar on the insurance side, have really just done what what we should be doing. Um, so I think, you know, starting any, you know, I might get in trouble for this, but any health system that has a chief marketing officer or growth officer that looks like me, you know, as a 69-year-old Caucasian guy, the chances that they're going to be able to get to to the majority of their consumers in a diverse city like Philadelphia and a city like Philadelphia, it's getting younger and younger. The chances of, of, of them being able to gauge is, is really almost zero. But when you look, most of the chief marketing and growth officers do look more like me. And I think that's, that's one of the major things that needs to change. So we have to engage, we have to engage with our patients in a different way. We have to engage with our employees in a different way. If you ask CEOs, the number one problem is employee recruitment and engagement. I'm, I'm advising three companies that are really doing a lot in that in that way. There's a nurse safety company actually we we helped develop at Jefferson called Strongline. Just really interesting technology that GPS enables when a nurse is feeling unsafe. That's a wow for the many 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 health systems that use that. That that the chief nursing officer or chief human resource officer can say, "Well, I want to keep my nurses safe." Another company called Guild, which is doing upskilling, so that you know Gen Z millennial folks that want to be able to stay in an organization and expand their skill sets or, or or grow, take the next job. We can help them do that, mostly uh, mostly digitally. And there's a company called AwardGo, which is a really interesting employee recognition and reward system. You put those together, and all of a sudden, for a chief human resources officer, they've got some real technical and, and digital tools for a very human problem, which is, which is trying to keep your employees retained and not having to spend... Three hundred dollars an hour on a on a you know traveling nurse. So I think you know I think smart systems are starting to look at at new types of cabinet members. Eric, probably my best hire as a cabinet member was a was a guy named Dr. Austin Chang, who I think now works at uh, Medtronic. But um, he was a CMSMIO, Chief Medical Social Media Information Officer, young Harvard trained gastroenterologist a darling of TikTok, you know, and when, you know, COVID came down and stuff, he was probably our biggest champion for young people getting vaccines because he was on TikTok. He had, you know, he's one of these people that had, you know, million, million followers. Um, and, and, you know, he was really using social media in a really positive way for Jefferson, for our patients, et cetera. So, you know, the chances again, that somebody, you know, who, who came from, up from what I did is going to be a chief marketing officer and be able to understand that power is very small. So I see, I see the positives happening. 
And we did a lot of them at Jefferson. A lot more need to get done. Um, but you just have to stop going, poor me, hospitals should should come down from God that hospitals should have 3% margins, even if we're inefficient. You know, and I think I think you have to solve it and you have to have payer provider alignment. You have to figure out how to decrease your costs. You have to have a better user experience and you have to diversify your portfolio. Well, all right, Dr. Clasco, I want to keep this music party going here and thinking about this race to value. I mean, we have to talk about for the love of money. And you had a chapter in your book about that OJ song and it's a, it's an anthem against the negative effects of greed and it's lyrics speak to the, destructive impact that a singular focus on money and profit can have on individuals and society at large. And in the context of American healthcare, that song's message is really relevant. I mean, as the healthcare industry is often criticized for prioritizing profit over patient care, and we see that from overpriced medications to exorbitant hospital bills, the industry's focus on profit it has is just led to this unsustainable system that we've been talking about where the costs of care are unaffordable for most Americans. And that OJ song, it really reminds us that the love of money can be a dangerous thing and that we must prioritize the health and well-being of individuals over the pursuit of profit. And in the chapter in your book, you describe the long history of failure of health policy and moving the system to value, you know, like the continued challenges of consumerism and price transparency and moving groups to two-sided risk and the MSSP and the insurmountable lobbying power that paralyzes the creative construction of a new system. But you also highlight the bright spot of the Maryland all-payer model, which mandated global budgets for hospitals and had great success. So, you know, uh, Dr. Clasco, I wanted to see if you could take us to a reimagined future of healthcare where we overcome our love of money to no end. I mean, what could our healthcare industry look like if health policy ensured everyone had the right to first-rate healthcare and the human beings leading our nation's health systems had this elevated consciousness where they seek profit, but they also ensure equity and population health for the communities that they're serving? Yeah, well, <laughs> probably if I if I had the answer to that, I should run for something, right? But um, I think the, the book does talk about a few models, including the Maryland model, which got uniformly panned when it first happened. Um, and I think now, you know, people are really increasingly looking at, uh, and it certainly took some bravery to do that. Um, so the first thing is, it's not going to happen overnight. And, you know, it, you know, it's frustrating to me to hear the Medicare for all stuff like that's just going to solve the problem. If I could wave a magic wand, Eric, um, and I've talked about this in, in one of my other books, I would do a, a single payer by state, you know, and, and spend the next five to 10 years looking at what works best. So if you think about a single payer by state, Maryland would have their system. Other people might decide to replicate that. Vermont and California might say, hey, you know, I want the federal government to, to do it and do Medicare for all. In a place like Pennsylvania, you know, where we have, you know, two major blue plans, Highmark and, and, and Independence Blue Cross, and most of the for-profits, they'd have to compete to get that RFP and they'd have to continue to perform or in three years would be another RFP. It's a little bit like what I used to do for my 35,000 employees with our TPA. What would happen over five to, to 10 years is we start to get a better idea if there's, if there's one payer provider alignment system that really makes a difference. The problem is that, frankly, politicians just have not had the courage to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of money at stake, right? I mean, when you look at 
when you look at where money gets spent, if you take, you know, the NRA out of the equation, you know, uh, American Hospital Insurance Plans, American Hospital Association, Pharma Lobby, even the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Lobby. I mean, there's billions of dollars spent uh, uh, on politicians. We're, we're, we're one of only two countries in the world, Eric, that allows direct-to-consumer um, pharma, pharma advertising. And the reason other countries don't do it, they know that it has negative effects, but we've been lobbied. And even when you think about our country, when it first started, it was things like Viagra and, uh, and ibuprofen. Now, if you go on, listen to Morning Joe or Fox and Friends or CNN, it's, do you have stage four lung cancer? Ask your doctor about X. Now, it took me a while to understand, like, there can't be that many people with stage four lung cancer, thankfully. But the reason is that that drug is ridiculously expensive. There's only about 10% of the people that really need it or benefit from it. But now everybody wants it. And they've done the calculation, literally the calculation. And they can get docs because of the pressure for patients to give that drug to folks that probably didn't need it or, or won't benefit from it. So the fact that we allow that to happen, you know, is just, it means we don't really want to solve the problem. In my specialty of obstetrics, we spend four times more per obstetric patient than any civilized country and our, and our outcomes keep going down. Our maternal morbidity and mortality as well as our neonatal morbidity and mortality continue getting worse. And there's a lot of reasons for it. One is, you know, I, I remember my daughter got pregnant during the pandemic and she needed three non-stress tests um, a week. And she said, dad, I had to go and pay $35 park three times a week, go to a place where there were a lot of sick people in the elevator so that I could go up and somebody could slap a monitor. I could stare at the ceiling and two hours later have somebody tell me the baby's okay. I thought you were the digital dude. Can't you take care of that? Well, you know, I'm not necessarily the digital dude, but I was on the board of a company that did remote obstetric monitoring at home. And they've been very successful in many countries, not the United States. Why? One of the reasons why, well, there's two really two major reasons. One is it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. And we still get paid a lot to have people come to the hospital to do these things. And the second reason is, is, is malpractice, right? I mean, Philadelphia, we have like two malpractice lawyers for every doctor. And the first baby that was monitored at home, you can imagine that 16 years later, there'd be, you know, 2 a.m. commercials from a Schwartz and O'Reilly law firm. You know, did your baby not get into the college of, of his or her choice where they remotely monitored, you know, call this law firm and we'll we'll be happy to sue them. Um so I think that we, you know, it gets back to the comment you made in your question. We have a system that does great, does absolutely great for plaintiff's lawyers, for specialty doctors, not primary care doctors, but for dermatologists, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, cardiologists, et cetera. Does absolutely great for the pharma industry. It does absolutely great for the insurance industry, you know, giving them 17 cents on the dollar to make sure the people that pay for the care, get the care, provide the care, can't talk to each other. It does absolutely great for the electronic medical record industry. It does absolutely great for the pharmacy benefit management industry. And it does absolutely great for patients that have, un have unlimited resources to get the top insurance. It totally fails most of the people in the middle class, you know, that either don't have full Medicaid or, or, or can't get everything. And that's why we're one of the few countries that, 
you know, people have to mortgage their house and to get cancer care, et cetera. It's, it's unconscionable, Eric. And if you really want to get mad about the system, think back to, you know, like August or, or July or June of 2020. And, you know, in, in my hometown at that time in Philadelphia, which is the home of Comcast, there were a few zip codes that didn't have more than 50% people have broadband. So they were watching CNN being told, you know, be careful going to a hospital. You probably don't want to go to a hospital because you get this horrible virus. Your, let's say, wife or husband has chest pain. You know, honey, I don't know. Normally, I go to the ER. What should I do? Well, they said there's this virus in the hospital. You don't have broadband or the resources to be on one of the telehealth programs. And your wife might go and say, you know, why don't you just go to bed and see what happens? And you And you died. That happened all over this country, by the way. So that's bad. What's ugly is the fact that if you listen to some of the insurers' earnings reports over the next three, six, nine months, you would often hear things like we had we quadrupled our profits or net operating incomes in our in Medicaid space because we had actuarialized that these people would get care and they died at home. Now that's not their fault. They didn't do anything wrong. That's our system. So yeah, I, I think, you know, to me. This needs more than a tinkering, and it needs some people to fail. It needs some hospitals to fail. It needs some insurers to fail. If you're not providing value, if you're not, you know, if if you're not really looking at things differently, if you're, I look at everything as BC, DC, and KAC before COVID, during COVID, and kind of after COVID. If you're looking at anything the same way in the KAC time as you were in the BC time, in essence, you know, you're, you 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 should fail. And and I think hopefully that's what we'll start to see that will will allow systems to fail, will allow the chores to fail. And it would certainly accelerate it if we had something like a single payer by state or or two payers by state. Well, Stevie K, I wanted to bring this party to a whole new level by bringing in the one and only Lady Gaga and her song Born This Way is an anthem for self-acceptance and celebrating diversity in the chorus of the song includes the lyrics i'm beautiful in my way because god makes no mistakes i'm on the right track baby i was born this way and the message of of self-love and acceptance has resonated with many people particularly those who have felt marginalized or judged because of their differences however the same affirmation does not apply to healthcare in america the covid 19 pandemic proved that a person's zip code and living conditions are more important to health status and life expectancy than one's genetic code and whether you're born this way. And we've entirely lost our way when it comes to health equity in our country. And it's grossly unfair that people in our country can be deprived of the human right to good health literally because of where they live. So, uh, Dr. Clasco, you know, I wanted to ask you how healthcare leaders can make equity more than just a philosophy by orchestrating a complete reorientation of their mission. I mean, is it possible for our country to shift the paradigm on population health where tech and public health and CBOs and healthcare all come together in such a way that they collectively address social determinants of health to truly empower that spirit of self-love and self-actualization for the marginalized that Lady Gaga sings about? I think it went something like, don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Yeah. So the reason I included that song for that chapter is um, there's this great documentarian uh, named Platon who gave one of my commencement addresses. And he did a 
documentary with us where he took two babies in Jefferson's nursery that were side by side, both beautiful babies that were just delivered as babies are beautiful, and basically looked at one that was going to a suburban zip code and one that was going to North Strawberry Mansion. And the concept of the, of the documentary is that one of those babies might make it to 2090 and one of those babies will live to 2104. With assuming that nothing else is different about them genetically other than, you know. So the fact that, you know, in, in almost every big city, we know that zip code and living conditions are more important in your health status and life expectancy than, than your genet genetic code. We've known that. In fact, at Jefferson, we had the first College of Population Health led by Dave Nash, who did some of that, you know, some of that work around the fact that 80% of your health is what we spend about 10% of our money on. So it honestly, it all gets down to incentives. In a utopian world, you know, the way you put it, or I would <laughs> I would take it a step down, even a rational world, a health system CEO should be incentivized to keep their population as healthy as possible. Under that model, the organization would send someone to the patient's house, work with them to investigate their upstream health issues and how they could be solved, right? You know, it's one of the things I did at Jefferson. It starts with the mission. And it really starts with the fact that we have to relook at nonprofit health systems, how nonprofit they are, right? So when I got to Jefferson, I'd say all the academic medical centers in Philadelphia had the same mission. We'll be the premier academic medical center in Philadelphia. But nobody cares about that other than you and your mother, right? So we changed ours to We Improve Lives. We changed our vision to reimagining healthcare education and discovery to create unparalleled value. And then we changed some of our incentives. 25% of my personal incentive was based on reducing five health inequities in Philadelphia. We started the Philadelphia Collaborative for Health Equity. You know, and I'll give you an example. And, and it, it started some radical collaborations that didn't exist before. I'll just give you an example. Ken and Andrea Frazier, Ken was the CEO of Merck, and he recognized that where he was born, which is like around, you know, 18th and Tioga, for those of you who know who North, North Philadelphia, uh, his chance as an African-American man of getting a stroke or a heart attack was 20 times, you know, where he now lives in, in the suburbs with, without anything else changing. And that was unconscionable to him. So he wanted to start the, the Ken and Andrea Frazier Stroke Center with a very large contribution. And then he did like the Columbus thing. Oh, one more thing. And he drew a little circle around where he was born. I wanted to, I don't want it to be at Jefferson. I want it to be right in the circle. Well, it turns out that circle is literally right next to our quote competitor, Temple Health. I said, wow, you know, that's right in Temple. He goes, yeah, well, you're the one always talking about healthcare at any address. So here's the money, prove it. So I called my colleague president at Temple, Dick Englert. He's a great guy. And I said, Dick, I'd like to give you $5 million. And he said, you know, I think my mom had taught me that if I get a call and someone wants to give me $5 million, it's probably a Nigerian prince and I should hang up. Um, but, you know, I've known you for a long time, Steve, so I'm willing to listen. So, you know, we said, look, what if we do this together? We ended up doing it in a strip mall next to Temple. Turns out the person that owned that strip mall was a uh, developer that had contributed to Jefferson and Temple and gave us rent-free for 10 years. And all of a sudden, there's amazing... Frazier Stroke Center in, in an underserved area in Philadelphia. So I use that as an example of if you start to change the view 
of where healthcare really happens and then do something about it around food, housing, and transportation. I'll give you another example. You know, we met with the Biden-Harris team about food deserts. And, you know, everybody will tell you food deserts are, they're, they're unsolvable. The simple fact is, Eric, you might be able to walk to a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods, but there are people in, you know, in certain places in Philadelphia that can always only walk to a uh, bodega selling Fritos and, and, and Coke. Okay, and that's how it was in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. But now, everything's barcoded. We could come up with a model that literally has people barcode healthy food. And if they're willing to use government funding to get healthy food, and we could actually drone deliver that food using companies like Zipline. That could make all the difference in the world. So, you know, in, in solving childhood obesity and some of these other things. So it gets back to a common theme. It's not that we, it's not that we don't know what to do. It's just that in essence, we know that economically focusing on the high-risk patients is going to give the highest financial return. But the underlying reason that there's such high risk is driven by social determinants. But we've also recognized that if we really start concentrating on that, our traditional sources of revenue will be challenged. And, you know, it's just, it gets back to really what's been a theme of this. I'm having five glasses of vodka at night. I really don't want to change because change would be difficult. So I don't want to be called an alcoholic. The, the moment we acknowledge that we failed in keeping people healthy, that we failed in population health, that we failed to this point in really going from volume to value, when we failed in going from sick care to health assurance, the moment we acknowledge that, then we have to do something about it. So as long as, you know, Everybody can pat themselves on the back for how they handle things during COVID and ignore the fact that people died uh, because of social determinants. Then they don't have to you know, be faced with the fact that, gosh, we failed. What are we going to do about it? And, you know, to this point, consumers haven't had their on mad as hell. I'm not going to take any more moment, but I think that's coming. And the rest of the folks haven't really wanted to rock the boat because there's a lot of money in not rocking the boat. Well, Steve, let's uh, now dig in on a deep cut. And I had never heard the song The Myth of Trust by Billy Bragg until I read about it in the epilogue of your book as one of the six songs that exemplify what you've learned in life during your 40-year journey as Stevie K, the DJ, and your healthcare journey as Stephen K. Clasco, MD, MBA. And the song starts with somber lyrics. You know, I woke up this morning to find that we have outlived the myth of trust you woke up this morning to the fact that we've lost the things we took for granted between us. And the loss of trust and in people and in institutions right now is so pervasive in America right now. And you write about in your book how trust is so much more important than technology. Regenerative medicine, precision medicine, omics, all those trends are fine, but healthcare has to start with values. And the core of values is ethics. And this is a a great revolution of health assurance transformation. So I wanted to ask you how we can pursue the goal of responsible innovation to ensure that human relationships and trust are of paramount importance in healthcare transformation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is one of the most important songs. I mean, I'm not sure it's a, it's actually a good song, but the, the concept people for all the right reasons are, lo are losing trust in, in the healthcare system. And if you look at, I remember talking to an executive at Google Health during the pandemic, and they'd come up with some really good GPS type technology of 
you know, basically all you had to do is, you know, subscribe to this and they would know everybody around you that got COVID and, you know, where you are. And, you know, they were amazed that not everybody did this. It, it failed. Almost everything they've done in, in health from the point of view of getting a hold of patients and patients' records has failed. For the simple reason, people don't trust them. And for, for good reason, right? I mean, you know, as it is, we, we lose a lot of privacy no matter what. But they don't trust them with their health because they don't really believe that they're going to look out for their best interests. And, you know, and I think that's even true of the systems. You know, we did this really interesting model of color genomics where we gave every one of our 30,000 employees access to free CLIA genomic testing. And there were some just amazing stories of people that found out stuff that maybe saved them from dying early and that kind of stuff. But there was almost this inverse relationship between, um, you know, where you were on the income level versus how willing you were to do this. So the $17 an hour employees, the $20 an hour employees were, well, thank you so much, President Clasco. This is a great perk. We really appreciate it. You know, it'll, it'll really help our family. You know, the chairs, the deans were often, uh, you know, and I'm not going to do this because you'll use it for tenure. You'll use it for my life insurance. And I was stuck with, you know, trust me, I'm your president. So I think there's, you know, there's clearly a trust piece. And, and you know, one of the companies I'm most excited about working with, we tentatively call it HealthX. Uh, it's led by this wonderful founder, Priyanka Agarwal, who, you know, we're creating this public benefit corporation around patient consent and using blockchain tokenization DAO. And, you know, one of the first things we're doing it, it with, with some partners is around uh, gun control data. But the ability to start to create a data collection and actionable data that isn't owned by a for-profit, where if I as the, pa I, as the patient have control over it, because that's how it was with the color genomics thing we did, Jefferson, you got the data, you could share it with your doctor if you wanted to, you didn't have to. You could share it for research trials if you wanted to, you, you didn't have to. And in this health X piece, Literally, if you decide to to use it for, let's say, a drug trial, you'll get the benefit. You'll get the, the tokens, if you will, and that could be in crypto or something like that. So I'm excited about that because I think you know we're starting to put trust back into the equation. But I think the other the other part of trust is is on the employee side. I was part of a Deloitte manuscript they did called "Addressing United States Talent uh, Health Talent Emergency," and it was scary. Forty five percent. Actually, 55% or 60% of nurses didn't think that the CEO really cared about them. And 35% of nurses didn't think that the CEO really cared about patients. Now, you know, it doesn't mean that the CEO doesn't. But the fact that the nurses would feel that way, which I think is why 18 to 20% of nurses have left the system, why they didn't feel bad about going on to, you know, uh, traveling nurse things and then coming back to the hospital for twice the the wage, they felt used over a long period of time as they should have. So I think I think how we start to relook at at healthcare as a public good, and how we start to look at ourselves as CEOs of health systems as servant leaders for a public good, it's gotten very far away from that. I would argue it's gotten far away from that in politics also, right? I mean, so. And we certainly, you know, we're not perfect at, at at Jefferson, but we really tried as much as possible to really uh, inject trust into the equation and give people a chance to communicate with us when when, when they didn't feel that 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 we were we were living that 
that trustworthiness. Well, Steve, let's now wrap up this DJ session. And I wanted to land on Don't Stop Believing" by Journey. And it's a popular song that's inspired so many people to keep pushing forward in the face of adversity. And the song's message of hope and perseverance can serve as a metaphor for healthcare transformation in several ways. I mean, it tells us never to give up and believing the vision of a better healthcare system, like the characters in the song who are searching for something more. It reminds us that healthcare transformation is about a better future for patients, providers, and communities. And it's about dreaming big and striving for excellence and care delivery outcomes and patient experience. And finally, the line in the song, don't stop believing, hold on to that feeling, can be interpreted as a call to action for healthcare leaders and providers. I mean, it's a that reminder of transformation and, and it requires not just vision and commitment, but also a sense of urgency and determination. And it's a call to stay focused on the end goal and keep pushing forward when the path ahead seems unclear or difficult. So I wanted to ask you, you know, just in uh, finishing up our conversation today, if you could take us home, you know, to the year 2035, where we finally realize the fullest potential of health assurance, where things like AI and 3D printing and remote patient monitoring and digital medicine are ubiquitous. And they're also working alongside uh, compassionate providers and that are fully committed to equity and population. You know, what does that future look like to you? Let me take an example, because I think it's 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 really exciting uh, example. One of the things that I'm working on is I'm leading an advisory board with some really great folks, the former CEO of Cleveland Clinic, former secretary of HHS, former secretary of VA. Um, so I always try to think about, you know, 10 years from now, what are my grandkids going to go and say, you know, grandpa, what, you know, is it true that in 2023, this things were like this? And the area where I think that's going to happen is in transplantation. There's 100,000 people today waiting for a transplant, about 1,000 people for lung, maybe 10,000 for liver and about um, 85,000 for uh, kidney and people are dying while that's happening. And, um, and through some incredible efforts from Martine Rothblatt, the CEO of United Therapeutics, she was the founder of uh, SiriusXM and 3D Systems, which is the largest 3D printing company. We're creating the totally vascularized, cellularized bioprinted lungs. Next will be livers and kidneys. We already have a bioprinted breast, post-breast cancer. So that's just, that's just, I mean, uh, you know, so getting back to my grandkids, I think they will say, you know, is it true in 2023? I can't believe this could be true, but if you needed a, uh, if you needed a kidney uh, transplant, somebody had to take, take out their kidney. So I think, you know, maybe the best way to, to look at this world that I see of health insurance is let's just, you know, let's think about a pandemic, right? Or let's think, you know, um, let's just take a random date. It's May 1st. 2033, and a mutant strain of an RNA encapsulated virus been hitting people in Australia. Of course, uh, you know, people like you and I were old enough to remember, especially healthcare workers, uh, the dark days of, uh, of the early 2020s when COVID-19 immediately panicked, but it wasn't for long because they knew healthcare had evolved from this sort of broken, fragmented, expensive, and inequitable sick care system to this health assurance system where most of their care happens at home. So what does that mean? Well, since most of their healthcare data is now continuously streamed to the cloud and uh, generative AI bots are constantly analyzing them for any changes, the early symptoms of the new virus are immediately identified and uh, 
anyone throughout the world who exhibited those early symptoms was notified and asked to socially isolate. By the way, if, um, if, if that was the case, an employer would be notified and asked for an excused absence. That would all be done, you know, outside of you automatically. Uh, there'd be software immediately sent through the Internet of Things uh, to your home 3D printer to create the right mask for you and your family. Uh, if you're having pad attack attacks, remembering the COVID-19 crisis, you could immediately communicate with your bot psychiatrist. And if you needed to, could immediately receive drone-delivered treatment. Uh, there wouldn't be lines or concerns about food or supply storages because humans wouldn't be dependent, dependent variable for this fourth industrial revolution. You have drones, AI, Internet of Things, and robotics. So the supply chain was modified. There's no reason to board toilet paper. And, and in, in this new world, the whole scale was over within about a month with new bioprocessing techniques able to identify, develop, and test vaccines through rapid prototyping. Instruction for K-12 students continued seamlessly uh, because the U.S. had finally reached broadband in 100% of households by 2025. And just as healthcare at home was mainstream, so were creative ways of teaching in a variety of venues. So to me, that, that's the future I see in a, in a, in a health assurance mode. And what's interesting about that, all those things I, I said are pretty much available today in some form or another. We just haven't literally wanted to, been able to put them together in a way that doesn't disrupt our current comfortable way of looking at things in, our, in the current traditional healthcare ecosystem. Well, Dr. Clasco, I, I wanted to thank you for bringing your message of hope and optimism and helping us feel all right, bringing the power of music to our audience and, and, and really giving us a vision for healthcare transformation. I mean, clearly music is something that's universal and it has a, a unique ability to bring people together and unite them in a way that transcends language and culture and geography and in healthcare specifically, we need all the hope and optimism we can get. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness to which you approached uh, not only your uh, career as a change agent and transformer in healthcare, but also someone that, that continues to, to look, you know, towards an uplifting and creative vision for the future. Again, thank you for joining us this week on the Race to Value podcast. No, it's really my pleasure. And the one final song you might want to think about, I, I kid around, there was a um, there was a basketball player, Jason Kidd, that went to the Dallas Mavericks. They were 24 and 52. And at the press conference, he said, I'm going to turn this team around 360 degrees. So at this point, we've done a lot of turning things around in healthcare 360 degrees. So the song I like to use for that is We'll Go Round in Circles uh, by Billy Preston. And we have to stop that, that continuous loop on getting to the same place and really make some of those bold, scary non-risk averse changes so thanks for this opportunity and i appreciate everything you folks are doing at the race to value uh it's our pleasure thank you so much